series traveling through the book of Romans. Today we come to Romans chapter 10. Last week we're in Romans chapter 9. Uh, if I may just do a quick recap on some of what we talked about last week. We've got a slide for you here that shows kind of how the outline of last week went. Paul was answering the question, why are the Jewish people rejecting Jesus as their Savior? Why are the Jewish people not interested in what Paul's been teaching here about the Lord Jesus? And so Paul says, well, one of the things that we know is uh, in verse 7, he says, look, uh, not all the people who are born Jewish, not all ethnic Israel are children of God anyway. And this has been the case even before the new covenant was struck with Jesus. And so then he says, well, look, also there's this issue, it comes to verse 13, I believe it is, uh, of God's mercy, that God can show mercy to whom God wants to show mercy. It's his prerogative. And then finally Paul says, hey, look at this Old Testament scriptures. This rejection of Jesus by his own people was predicted in the scriptures, uh, so it shouldn't be any surprise to us anyway. Well, in Paul's discussion about um, the, the first of those points where not all of ethnic Israel were children of God anyway, Paul raises the issue of election. And we defined election as this. Uh, the doctrine of election is that God chose before creation certain people to be saved. Um, and so that's, and that this was not based on a merit of their own. That It was an arbitrary, we might think of it as an arbitrary decision that God made of who would become, uh, who would be coming to heaven with him for eternity. And then the other side of that equation. And so uh, I want to just kind of open that up for us to talk about a little bit this week. Um, and so Paul answers another question when we get to uh, chapter 10. Uh, and it's the question of, well, if the Jewish people have rejected Jesus, then how do the Jewish people find salvation? Like, is there some alternative method that we're not aware of? What does salvation look like for them? And so here's the outline for my uh, sermon today. Uh, and this is the way of salvation for the Jewish people. Paul, uh, just he's talking to Jewish people who have become Christians. That's who he's writing to in Romans chapter 10. And he's, so he's talking to his Jewish background audience who have become believers. And he says to them, look, here's the way of salvation. It looks like, number one, it's very simple. And he talks about that in Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 10. And then he says also that this method is easily accessible. Um, it's not something that's difficult to figure this out. Um, and then he also talks about how this method of salvation is well advertised. It's not like nobody knows about it uh, amongst the Jewish people. And then finally, that it's open-ended, that God is not retracting his offer to the Jewish people at some certain point in the future. And so next week, we'll talk about Romans chapter 11, where we, Paul start, begins to talk about the future of Israel itself as a nation. Um, again, this week he's talking about how do Jewish people uh, get to heaven? Uh, what is the way of salvation for them? So that's our outline. That's where we're going. Um, our text that we're going to read, I'm going to ask if you would stand to your feet for Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Let's go ahead and stand up. Uh, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Uh, let's read these together, beginning at verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Um, before we dive in, uh, this, this section where Paul's uh, answering this question of what's the Jewish way of salvation uh, begins at verse 10 and runs all the way through the end of the chapter. And so we'll be walking through all those verses together. That verse that we just read is kind of the, uh, the, the what's the word I'm searching for? Help me out here. Uh, no. Climactic point, perhaps. Uh, the big point that he wants to make. Um, and so, uh, so 
We're going to go back to verse 10, but verse 5. But before we go to verse 5, let me just give you a, really quickly a working definition of righteousness because the word righteousness is going to appear a lot in, this, in these verses. Um, so righteousness, this is just my definition, is a right standing with God. That is that you can stand pure and blameless before a holy God and feel safe and secure in his presence. Uh, that you're not standing before him in all of your sin, you're not standing before him in all of your guilt, but rather that because of the blood of Jesus, you're able to stand before him and feel safe and secure in his holy presence. That's what a right, righteousness is. It is being made righteous, being, have, being given a right standing. Okay, so let's go ahead and look at verse 5. Um, if you would, flip over there with me. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. Now again, he's writing, he's writing about, he says Moses is writing about a right standing with God that is achieved or acquired or is based on keeping the laws of Moses. That is observing the moral law, doing all the things that the law says that you're supposed to do. He says, and that person who does these commandments shall live by them. That is that they will have a fullness of life. They will have fulfillment in life. They will have peace with God because they're keeping all of these commandments. Uh, now, the interesting thing is there was a lot of Jewish people who were um, uh, super fanatical about keeping all of the Jewish law. And for many of them, they found that it was impossible to do, even the ones that were super ultra fanatical about keeping the laws of Moses. And so there's a real problem there, and that is that if you're going to base your righteousness, your right standing on God, on keeping the law, which is impossible to do perfectly and completely, well, we got a real problem with getting to right standing. And so Paul says, well, since that option won't work for you, since that would be an impossibility, he says, how about this, verse 6, he says, a righteousness that is based on faith. A righteousness that is based on faith. Now, that is something very different than a righteousness that is based on keeping the works of the law. The works of the law are human performance-based. It's, watch God what I can do. It's, God, I'm going to do everything right. I'm going to dot all my I's and cross all my T's and live perfectly for you, which is an impossibility. Uh, and then the issue, Paul says, but hey, look, there's some other way of obtaining a right standing with God, and it's based on faith. That is putting my trust in acquiring a right standing with God on the basis of what somebody else has done for me or some external uh, thing. And so that's what faith is. It's putting my trust out here rather than on my, on my own human performance, which would always fall short. Paul says back in Romans chapter 9 and verse 31, the preceding text, he says these words, he says, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. In other words, they were not able, which we know, to maintain the law perfectly. They couldn't do all the things that the law required. Their human performance fell short. It fell short for every last one of them, um, and so it didn't succeed. And so Paul's like, hey, consider a righteousness that's based on faith. And he says, he goes on to say in verse 6, do not say in your heart, he says, so this righteousness is based on faith, putting my trust in something outside of my own human performance. He says, that kind of righteousness does not say in its heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Paul's pointing out here an impossibility. The idea of going up into heaven and getting the righteousness that, like Jesus had, who lived perfectly and did all these things correctly and never sinned, had lived a sinless life. The idea of going up into heaven and acquiring that kind of righteousness and coming down here to the earth and going, here I am. I'm, I got my right standing now. I'm righteous now in your sight. And Paul's like, that's an impossibility to go up to heaven and find something like that and come back down here to the earth. And just the same, he says in verse 7, he says, it would be no different than who would descend into the abyss, that is, go to hell. 
uh, who is to bring up Christ from the dead. So just the same somebody who would go down into hell and would find this righteousness down in hell, like they did the big search and they found this righteousness down there, and then they brought it back up to the earth and they said, hey God, look, I found it, I finally got it. So Paul's pointing out two impossibilities. Who could possibly go up into heaven? Who could possibly go down in hell, right? The very ends of everything and find this righteousness, this right standing with God. It's impossible. No one could do that. Uh, he says in verse 8, but what does it say? What does, a right, what does faith, a righteousness based on faith, say? It says, and he's quoting here from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 12 and 13. He says, the word is near you. This is from the words of Moses. He said, Moses said, the word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. Paul's making the point that this righteousness, that, this right standing with God that comes by faith, putting my trust in something outside of my own human performance, it's not that far away. It's not that difficult to find. Uh, in fact, it's very simple. It's very near to our heart. It's actually in our mouth, he says. All we have to do is this. Look at verse 9. He says, all we have to do is confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. And he says, you will be saved. You know, when you confess with your mouth, what are you doing? You're telling God something. And what is it that you're telling God? You're telling him, verse 9, that Jesus is my Lord. Putting him first above all others. And what else are you saying? You're believing in your heart. This is more than just head knowledge stuff. You're believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And Paul says, if you put those two things together, you will be saved. Again, the way of salvation is simple. It's so close. It's near to our heart. It's right there in our mouth, ready to be spoken. It's not some difficult task that we have to go up into heaven to find or go down into hell to find or try and live a perfect life. It is so near, it is so close, Paul says, it is simple. And he makes that case there. Verse 10, he goes on to say, which is really just a restatement of verse 9. Verse 10, he says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Again, this is a heart. You know, we turn to God. We don't just agree in our mind that Jesus died on a cross and was buried and, and rose again. Uh, but we make him our Savior by believing this in our heart, by taking this personally and allowing him to enter into our lives um, as well. So again, God made this whole way of salvation very simple. But not only is this way of salvation simple, Paul says it also has equal access. That is, it is available to everyone. Take a look at verse 11. Paul says in verse 11, For the scripture says, and he's quoting here from the Old Testament, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. The key word there is the word everyone. Everyone. This, this message of salvation is equally accessible. It's open to everyone. And he says that the ones who believe in Jesus will not be put to shame. He's referring there to final judgment. He's saying that when we get to the final judgment and we're standing before God, we won't be standing there with an egg on our face, embarrassed that we put our faith in Jesus. We won't get, be uh, disappointed that we had done that. That, oh no, I put my faith in the wrong thing. I, I was misled. I, 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 didn't, I, I followed the wrong thing. Paul's saying, hey, look, we won't be put to shame in that moment. Rather, we will be rejoicing. He goes on to say in verse 12, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same, that is, between Jew and non-Jew. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all 
who call on him. Again, this message is equally accessible. It is for everyone. He goes on to say again in verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God has always been open to all people coming to him, people of every stripe and color and gender and background. The point of these last couple verses is that the way of salvation has equal access, friends. And and then thirdly, Paul says the way of salvation is well advertised. Look at verse 14. That's what Tom read a little bit ago. Verse 14. Paul reminds his audience again that it's simple. The way of salvation has equal access. It's available to everyone and that it's well advertised. Verse 14. How then will they, that is the Jewish people, call on Jesus in whom they have not believed? Remember that the Jewish people have to call on someone means that you're confessing something. You're telling God something. And so Paul is saying here that uh, he's anticipating the question from his Jewish believing, his Jewish Christian uh, audience, that they're going to say, well, how can these Jewish people who call on, how can they call on God if they've not believed, if they've not entered this into their heart, if they didn't believe that Jesus really was uh, the Messiah, that he really was uh, dead and buried and, and resurrected. If they don't believe that, I mean, they're never going to confess that, Paul. And working backwards here, they say uh, also in verse 14, and how are they to believe in him in whom they've not heard? In other words, Paul, um, we doubt that the Jew, many of the Jewish people have even heard about Jesus, that they know any of this information, that this is this has ever been made available to them. Um, and so then he says, and how are they to hear without someone preaching to them? So kind of working backwards from calling on God from confessing uh, Jesus to, well, they never heard about it, to, um, you know, they've never uh, had anybody preach this to them. In other words, the people that they listen to, the Jewish people listen to, are going to be the rabbis. And the rabbis are not going to tell them about who Jesus is. The rabbis are not going to put two and two together between this Messiah, Jesus Christ, as the person that is the fulfillment of all, all the Old Testament that they've been looking for. And so if the rabbis aren't going to tell them about this, then how can God hold them accountable for something that they've never even heard before? And so this is a question. It's a good question. And Paul agrees in verse 17. He says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. You know what? You're right. If somebody's going to come to faith, if they're going to become a believer, they got to hear about the cognitive facts of the gospel first. And if they don't hear about the cognitive facts of the gospel, the word of Christ, then uh, yeah, I mean, this is a real problem. But then Paul says, verse 18, he says, but I ask, have they never heard? Have they never heard? I mean, really, you think that? You think that the Jewish people have never heard about Jesus before? Remember, Paul's writing to Jews in his day. And so Paul then quotes from the Old Testament saying, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. He's referring there to the Old Testament prophets who for centuries had been telling the Jewish people about the Messiah and about his coming and the things that they need to be looking for. And they've heard all that and they saw all these things play out in front of their very own eyes. And he's also referring to the disciples who have gone out across the globe. Nathaniel, out to Mongolia, Matthew, down into Ethiopia. They crisscrossed Israel. Jesus himself had been in their homes, in their synagogues, had been performing miracles. Tens and hundreds of thousands of people heard him preach over a three-year public ministry. Jesus was the buzz all around the country. I mean, this would be kind of like somebody who didn't know that Donald Trump was the president of the United States 
couple of, you know, last go around. I mean, it's like, what hole did you just crawl out of, right? And so Paul's making the point here that, hey, look, what do you mean that they haven't heard? Of course they've heard. And then he says in verse uh, 19, but I ask, did Israel not understand? Maybe it's an issue of they weren't able to put two and two together. And then Paul quotes from the Old Testament again. He says, first Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. In other words, Moses had the same problem. It wasn't that the people heard it. Ignorance was not the issue. The issue was not that they didn't understand. The people understood Moses. And so what Moses had to do to get their attention and to get them to accept the things that Moses was trying to teach them was he had to bring foreign nations in. He had to bring other people in to go, you know what, that sounds right. He had to make them jealous for their, the Jewish people, jealous for their own heritage. And God did this again and again and again. Uh, Jonah didn't want to go, right? He didn't want to go talk to those rotten Assyrians. But God said, I love those Assyrians, and they're not rotten. Um, and so God said, look, if, if you're going to love me and embrace this faith of Abraham, I'm not, and you all won't do it, then I'll go elsewhere, and I'll make you jealous for your own faith, for your own heritage. And so that's what he does there. Um, this message was well advertised. Fourth and final, verse 21, Paul says that this way of salvation is open-ended. That is that God gives them chance after chance after chance. It doesn't close the door on those chances on them either. He says, verse 21, but of Israel, God says, all day long, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary or obstinate people. Chances, God gave the Jewish people chances, Paul's saying. He gave them lots and lots and lots of chances. And even at the time when Paul's writing this, some 30 or so years after the ascension of Christ, he continues to offer this way of salvation to the Jewish people. He has yet to have retracted his offer of salvation to them. And so this way of salvation, which is righteousness through faith, confessing Jesus with your mouth, believing the cognitive facts about his death, burial, and resurrection, friends, that way of salvation is open-ended. It is available until you and I are cold and dead in the ground. Um, let me sum up. How does a Jewish person get to heaven? That's the question Paul's in front of him. That's the question he's answering. What is the way of salvation for them? Paul says, number one, it is very simple. All they have to do is confess that Jesus is Lord, believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. Secondly, it is equally accessible both to Jew and to non-Jew. It's available to anybody who would believe. Number three, it is well advertised. This message is out there. It's been out there. The people know. And then final, fourth and finally, it is open-ended that God will continue to offer all the way to the deathbed this offer of salvation. All right, well, that's our treatment of this text for today, and so that means it's time to ask the question we ask every week around here, what difference does all this make to my life? Um, I got two, two things. Uh, the first of all is going to require us to go back to some of what we talked about last week. I know we got into the doctrine of election a little bit last week, and so I want to take another look at it this week. Um, and I think that what we've discussed here today will help inform what we learned last week. It'll give some clarity to that. So let's go ahead and take a look at it. Romans chapter 10 and verse 
or back, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 9 and verse 10. Paul writes these words. He says, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Isaac and Rebekah had two children, two twin children, um, and the oldest of those was Esau, and the younger of those, the second one out, was um, Jacob, and Jacob was clutching onto the heel of his older brother. Um, and then he says, verse 11, that though the twins were not yet born, key phrase there, that they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, uh, that is, God was about to, he was going to make a declaration uh, before the boys were even born, before either of them had done something right or wrong, before either of them had shown promise, uh, before either of them had shown that God wanted to, why he would choose one over the other. So before they were even out here in the earth, God makes a choice of one over the other. And Paul points that out in verse 12. It said, God made a declaration over them. Here's the declaration. God told Rebekah that the older, Esau, will serve the younger. Now, that's very unique. I mean, that's, that's against the normal protocol of things. Um, typically, what would happen is that the eldest son would be the one through whom the inheritance would flow, would be the one through whom the blessings would flow. Uh, and, but in this situation, God says those blessings, are, I'm going to choose, I'm going to make a choice. Um, and those blessings are going to flow through Jacob. So he's going to choose Jacob over Esau. Um, and again, God had no basis on which to make that choice in terms of what either of these young men had done in the course of their life. Follow that. So, so they hadn't come out in the world yet. They hadn't done anything where God says, oh, you know what, this guy over here really seems to be the shining star, and so we're going we're gonna to let these blessings flow through Jacob. Paul's making the point that God stated this to Rebekah. He said, the older will serve the younger. I'm, ch I'm choosing the younger of the two boys before they were even born. Now, that creates a problem because it begins to look like uh, God is predestining one over the other. We may say that he's choosing for salvation one over the other, according to the definition of election. And if you're a Wesleyan Arminian, um, and you look at Romans chapter 9, and even if you were to take Romans chapter 9 out of the Bible and dismiss Paul's uh, three-verse three uh, argument here for it, um, you, you're still left with these, for instances in Scripture, where it appears that God is choosing certain people for election, that God is choosing certain people for salvation. Um, and so we have to deal with those. So even if we dismiss Paul's argument somehow, we're still left with God choosing Esau, or Jacob over Esau. Uh, another example, I pointed this out last week, was Jeremiah. Jeremiah the prophet said, verse Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5, Before I formed you in the womb, God says, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. So there are examples in the scripture of people that God said before they were even on this earth, before there were any basis on which to make a selection or a choice, God chose them. I didn't point this out to you last week, but how about John the Baptist? John the Baptist, um, his mother went and was praying for a child to be born. She was much older uh, than, than past the childbearing years. Um, and an angel appears to John and tells John before, before John the Baptist is born, Luke chapter 1 and verse 15, that John the Baptist would be filled with the Holy Spirit, get this, even from his mother's womb. So before John the Baptist had set foot on the world, in the world, had made a choice to follow God, God says that the Holy Spirit, which is the evidence that you're a child of God, is with John. And it's for that reason that when the two moms ran into one another, 
Mary and Elizabeth that the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaped as they realized it was in the presence of Almighty God. My point is that election happens in the Bible. God does elect some people for salvation. However, I also mentioned last week that I think God's election is limited. That is that God does elect some people when his salvific purposes in the world are at stake. And so if God is ready to unroll a sweeping reform in the church, he finds a guy like Martin Luther, strikes him with lightning, gets his attention, and Martin Luther gives his life in service to the Lord. Or he finds somebody like Billy Graham, or he finds somebody like the Apostle Paul who was not looking for Jesus in the least. Right? Paul wasn't sitting in a church service and thinking about his sin and thinking about how Jesus was, could be his Savior and looking to bring Jesus into his life. Paul wasn't searching for Jesus in the Scriptures. No, in fact, Paul was enemy number one of Jesus. And God came along, knocked him off the horse, called him into service. So election does appear to happen, but I hold to a limited election. When I was working on my dissertation, I ran across this word. Uh, I've got up for, the, for you on the screen the word generalizable. I'm still not confident that it is a word in the English language. Somebody can look that up for me or not. But it was the word that they put out in front of us from my, um, my dissertation committee. And so what the, let me just see what I wrote down. This generalizable means principles that are universally applicable no matter the context. So the idea here was to go out and do field research and find out in my particular situation, I'm doing research on local churches. And so I was going to local churches, visiting with people, asking specific questions, and trying to identify what are some of the principles or some of the practices that could be um, applied or could be used in other contexts, that could be universally successful in other areas. And some of the things that I found were things like the Every Member Ministry campaign. Right? I saw that happening in other churches, and I realized, you know, this, is a, this, this could work, and we need to tweak it a little bit for our local church. And so some of the way that we organize some of our budget or stuff and our, how all that's put together, some of those some things came out of that that we identified as being universally applicable. And so that's the concept of generalizability. Now, there are a lot of things that I learned that were not generalizable, uh, things that seemed to only work in that particular local church con- context, but that I didn't think I could bring here or that somebody else could bring into their church and it would work. But again, my point is, should the doctrine of election be understood as a generalizable principle? Should the doctrine of election be understood as a generalizable principle? That is, is it the way God works for everyone who comes to faith in Christ? Is this the normal practice of how people get saved? Or rather, is this election limited? Where God does this sometimes, but that it is not his normal practice. Um, Well, let's take a look at what the text said, what we just studied here in Romans chapter 10. Before I do that, I do just want to put it out there. That if you believe from your church tradition, or maybe you've just done some studying, that election is a generalizable principle. If you believe that, or as you've kind of been listening to me teach over these last couple weeks, that you see it as being a limited, that yeah, I see evidence of election in the Bible, and so I just think it's a limited thing, that when God's working out his salvation, and he wants to get the message out to the masses, he does go in and handpick some selected people, and he does work through individuals in this way. Or perhaps you would say, you know what, I don't think election, I think there's some other explanation for all this, and whichever of those you land on, you are welcome here at Hebrew Christian Church. 
In fact, we'll even make you a Sunday school teacher. <laughs> um, so this is, this, is not an, this is not a debate between people who are in the faith and out of the faith. This is a debate between brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a debate in the family. And so, again, we welcome all points of view. Let's take a look. Let's take a look back at Romans chapter 10, beginning at verse 11. I'm sorry, chapter 10 and verse 9. I think I gave you a verse 9. I'm not sure what they got on the screen. Anyhow, verse 9 says um, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Um, And then Paul goes on to say, so the the idea here is that it's a simple message that anybody can understand it, even a child can understand it. Verse 11, for the scripture says that everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul is making the case that this offer of salvation is not extended only to the elect, not, not only extended to people like Isaac, not only extended to people like Jacob, not only extended to people like Jeremiah or Samson or John the Baptist, but that it is for everyone. And so if I, if I take this perspective of a limited election, I see those names that I just rattled off as those who are elect, but then there's the rest of us. And that Paul is declaring that this, is, this message of Jesus is for everybody, for everyone. And that's the point he's trying to make there. Verse 12, he says, For there is no distinction, it's for everybody, between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Friends, we can parse words, and believe me, you get deep into this stuff in the literature, as I have been over the last couple months, and it's amazing, the parsing of words that happens and people trying to do backflips. But the point Paul is trying to make here in these couple of verses is that this thing is equally accessible to everybody. It doesn't, it doesn't determine between the elect and the non-elect, and that it's only for some people but not for other people. The Bible says, John chapter 3 and verse 16, for God so loved the elect. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. I know that was a cheap shot, but. but it doesn't say that. It says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever, that means it's available to everybody, would believe in him, would not perish, but would have everlasting life. My point is this. If we take the doctrine of election too far to what I call hyper-Calvinism, it creates some problems. And let me just list those off for you. And theologians of Calvinism and Reformed theology, they talk, they talk about this stuff. But these are the problems. They're aware of it. Uh, one of the problems is that there's the issue of free will. That I'm no longer making a decision for Jesus Christ. But rather that God is making that decision for me. Uh, that he's, that he's, he's the one who makes that happen. And so it just takes free will completely out of the equation. And then there's the second problem that rolls out of the first one, which is that God is picking winners and losers. That God, it seems, is arbitrarily deciding who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. And then there's the problem number three, which is the problem of evangelism. Why share Jesus with anybody? If it's all predetermined and God's got it all figured out, he's already picked who's in and who's out, then, I mean, why, what's my motivation to go do world missions? God's already made that decision of who's going to be in, who's going to be, he's going to figure that out. Why go do that? What's my motivation? And so there are some problems that arise out of a hyper view of election, a view beyond just a limited view of election. A limited view of election 
avoids all these pitfalls. It allows us to acknowledge what is clearly taught and present in the Bible while at the same time upholding human free will that people have to make a choice. All right, so that's the first difference it makes. The second difference that it makes, and I'll be quick here, concerns the Jewish people. I mean, how does a Jewish person get to heaven? Well, there's been some debate in the church over the last three, four decades, especially as dispensationalism's kind of come on the scene and, and Israel's returned to its homeland and it's become a nation. And there's been some, some thought processes uh, that are new to Christian history with regard to the Jewish people. And one of those is captured in uh, a meeting of the Episcopal bishops in 1987. They came out with this statement, and I quote, With special respect to the Jewish people, we note that the New Testament in several places affirms God's continuing covenant with the Jews through Moses, even as he establishes the new covenant through Jesus Christ. So they're kind of like saying there's two competing covenants. Uh, that, well, not competing, but two simultaneous covenants, the old and the new. We suggest, therefore, that any evangelistic focus on the Jewish people collectively may be inappropriate. So what are they saying? They're saying there's no need to go evangelize the Jewish people. Is that what Paul said? Of course not. Presbyterian Church USA published this statement several years ago. When speaking with Jews on matters of faith, we must always acknowledge that Jews are already in a covenantal relationship with God. Again, no need to share Jesus with them. Again, we just got done hearing the Apostle Paul for a whole chapter of Scripture say the way of salvation is simple. It's equally accessible. It is well advertised to these Jewish people. They know about who Jesus is, at least the ones in his day. And it's open-ended. It's there till they give their dying breath. He says, that's the way of salvation. It is so simple. You may say, well, I mean, okay, I hear what you're saying, Gordon, that Jesus is the one way, he's the only way God struck this new covenant and that there's no other, no other way. I mean, God, God created a way for us to get to heaven and it's the same thing for the Jewish people it is for anybody else. But I got one, one objection and one question for you, and that is when people get to heaven who are devout Jews or devout whatever, and they weren't believers, like they didn't, they didn't believe in Jesus as Savior. Could God credit them with Jesus when they get there? Because they were devout, they were sincere. I mean, they sat on the banks of the Ganges, and they, they said their prayers, and they, uh, they, they went to, um, to mosque, and they, they said their prayers daily, and they did all the things that they were supposed to do. Could God credit Jesus to them when they get to heaven? Well, I suppose he could. But the Bible says God does not do that. He said very clearly, Romans 10 and verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart some cognitive facts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Listen, sharing Christ with someone makes my heart race. <laughs> uh, maybe my palms get a little sweaty. And for us, it may mean sharing about what Jesus has done in my life with someone might cost you a promotion. It might cost you a business deal. But when I weigh the cost of eternal damnation, not knowing, not responding to the gospel against 
the temporary costs that I may have to pay here in this life. I'm willing to pay that price. And so let there be motivation for us in sharing about what Jesus has done in our lives, friends. Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you again for the opportunity to open up your eternal word, your truth. Lord, may it prick our hearts. May it drive out um, false teaching and false thinking from our minds. Lord, there is one way. There is only one way. You said yourself many times over, John 14 and verse 6, that I'm the truth, the way, the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father. Where's the Father? He's in heaven. Nobody gets to him but through you. So, Lord God, may we be motivated as we go out, day in and day out, week after week, not only to be lights in the darkness of this world, but, Lord, to share the cognitive facts about what you came and did so that we could have salvation. Lord, take this time of communion. We pray that your Holy Spirit would stir and work in our hearts. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.